Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. Um, I am the co-host of the EdTech Situation Room, and this is episode 83 for a Wednesday, January 24th, 2018. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And today, I started a temporary gig as a uh, a part-time adjunct faculty teaching uh, the EdTech Methods course at the University of Montana for pre-service teachers, along with my partner in crime, Mike Costanelli. So uh, interesting times going on in Missoula. And tonight, joining me, as always, uh, from Oklahoma City, good evening, Wes Fryer. Good evening, Jason. I'm uh, just uh, being a little bit more casual here tonight, but hopefully most of our folks are listening to the show and not, you know, having to look at our at our mugs. If you're going to turn in live, though, we definitely encourage you to check out our chat room. And I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School, and we've got uh, probably just as, as uh, lengthy a list of, of articles. I was listening to a podcast I really like, The Committed, and they were, talk- they were describing January as a black hole of news, perhaps because they focus primarily on Apple stuff. So since we talk about all kinds of uh, tech stuff, we, we have no shortage of topics to discuss tonight. So we encourage you to check out our links at edtechsr.com slash links, and we will do our best to put an educational technology spin and lens on the tech news of the past week, or sometimes we'll go back a little bit further. So where shall we begin, host Jason? Well, since I am located in Montana, I would love to, as reported um, in, and I don't even have the link in front of me, this is embarrassing, so I will fill now, as reported on The Verge on January 22nd, 2018, Montana, big sky country, has led the 50 states in putting in a firm stop to the scale back of net neutrality protections that the SEC voted on in December, and Part of this is understanding how Montana works and how the Montana situation works. But Governor Steve Bullock, who is the governor of the state of Montana, um, signed an executive order earlier this week, basically providing net neutrality because of the way Montana is a rural state. So let me explain that. Basically, he said that Montana will only engage in contracts with uh, broadband broadband vendors that recognize net neutrality rules. And because we only have a handful of providers in Montana, we have a couple big players. Uh, there's Major Telecom in Montana, CenturyLink that, that does DSL. We have uh, basically one uh, cable provider. It's Spectrum that provides a cable-based Wi-Fi. We have a lot of rural co-ops, but my guess is there's not a single provider in the state of Montana that doesn't have and probably relies upon a state of Montana contract in some way, shape, or form. And all those will now need to comply with net neutrality rules, which makes Montana effectively the first state in the nation to firmly protect net neutrality as part of policy. So now a couple things about this to start with. First, the reason why this is even possible is because um, our governor was able to use a state contract to do that. I think we'd have a harder time doing that if we were in a state that had multiple competitors where the state was not a primary customer for some of the more critical pieces of that. So that's one of the reasons why that's possible here. But it's very exciting, especially since I am from a, I guess, probably a politely described purple state. Um, we have a, a a large block of red voters. We have a few statewide uh, uh, blue elected officials. But I think, generally speaking, in Montana, we've been a fan of maintaining net neutrality, especially since we have such a, a low diversity in the amount of Wi-Fi and broadband providers here in the state. So I'm incredibly excited that my internet will be protected, and I think that's something that's that's really to be celebrated. So Wes, any sign of Oklahoma jumping in to save net neutrality in your state? I have not heard any, any rumors. I am really, of course, curious to follow this. Never before, I think, have you shared an article to open up an episode with as much pride just sort of, you know, bursting forth from, from your voice. So there you go. With, with tie-on and uh, appropriate fleece vest, he is definitely, you know, this, this is a very good thing. The, that article, which I did take a look at before the show, indicated the state's rights issue, which is going to be raised because the FCC has attempted to preempt these kinds of state actions by saying, no, states, you cannot do that. And as we'll all recall, you can probably help me, Jason, isn't it the 10th Amendment, which reserves rights not specifically, artic- you know, um, 
given to the, the federal government. Those are reserved for the states. And I hardly, I mean, I, I'll, I'll enjoy reading the, the, uh, the briefs on this where they're going to try and attempt to say, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do interstate commerce, I'm sure, because the, the, the ability to regulate interstate commerce is something that is addressed in the Constitution. But, you know, it, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a huge issue. So I'm glad to see states stepping up for this. You know, we we have lots of criticism for states with and, and cities really for sanctuary cities and the ways in which folks are attempting to resist federal mandates around the issues of immigration. Um, and I think that we need to. What we really need is for Congress to act, and ultimately that is what you know will enshrine the values of net neutrality, you know, in the legal code. And as we've talked about on the show before, not leave it up to elected officials on the FCC who, you know, can come and go as administrations change. But kudos to Montana and we'll have to watch and, and see what happens next. Uh, I, I don't don't anticipate our government, um, which is which is uh, highly conservative and probably supportive of, of all things Trump in terms of the the aggregate decisions uh, of the governor's office, as well as the state house doing anything like this. But who knows? It uh, can be a crazy, crazy time. And we may may see, um, you know, some individual uh, legislators in other places um, see this example and, and propose some things. Sure. I want to know one other piece of this that's also, I think, critical is to understand that Montana is a very rural state. And sometimes our former um, uh, superintendent of public instruction, Denise Juno, who uh, served two terms and recently termed out of that office, one of the things she used to talk about is that it's not even rural, it's rural and a frontier state, she described us as. And one of the things I think Montana struggled with in dealing with D.C. bureaucrats and, and all of our politicians, Democrats and Republicans, have to explain this, is that the rural nature of Montana is a little hard to wrap your brain around until you understand that when we say rural, we're not talking about a town with 22,000 people. We're talking about a town with 22 people. And that's something that is very different than a lot of areas where there are large uh, you know, mega cities that, that may have rural areas in them where suburbs or something that's uh, you know, 20 minutes away from um, you know, a downtown large city. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about cities and towns and, and, and really villages that are you know, uh, two and a half hours from a major medical center by car, two hours from a major grocery store by car, five hours from a major grocery store. And to give a sense of the sheer size, and this is a statistic I like to talk about, um, my uh, partner in crime at, at the Digital Academy is Mike Agustinelli. We're talking about making a car trip to the far northeastern part of Montana. One of the towns we're looking at is Wolf Point, Montana, which is an eight-hour car ride from Missoula. And if I took off in the other direction and drove eight hours, I'd be in Seattle, Washington, right? And so, you know, Seattle is closer to me as a drive than Wolf Point is in, in the other direction. Montana is a very large state. And we have a very rural population. And so when there is, you know, net neutrality repealed and there isn't a diversity or choice in the market of, of, of broadband providers, that makes a really huge difference for, for small rural telephone co-ops who I believe are doing really important work, but you know, there, there's no market for that. They're in a lot of cases doing that just out of the goodness of, 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 of serving the community as opposed to a, a real profit motive. So interesting discovery and we'll see if other states jump on board Montana. So, Wes, any other geographically based news we could talk about today? Well, let's see. Um, boy, there's so much we could almost just do a speed round for for the entire show. Um, let's let's do a Hawaiian sh story, shall we? Um, as I think, hopefully, a lot of us realize there was a tremendous blunder this last week, or was it two weeks ago, in Hawaii when the government sent out a a uh, false warning that there was an imminent missile attack inbound that was not a drill. And Amy Burval, who if you don't follow Amy on Twitter, is a, an amazing educator and creative, is one person. I actually have some relatives also that I know in Hawaii, but Amy has uh, you know posted some on, on Facebook about this. Uh, this was a, like the, the real deal, according to what what people thought, because just like you get an Amber alert on your phone, they received this message incoming, you know, ICBM nuclear missile attack or whatever. This is not a drill. And it took 43 minutes 
for them to issue the the correction, I guess, because they had permission from FEMA to warn people, but not to correct their mistakes. And so there was an individual who um, actually was supposed to be doing a test. He had to, uh, you know, click on the this is the real thing and then confirm it. There wasn't any two factor like with another person, I guess, if, you know, I'm sure the U.S. Air Force, when the uh, ex- chief executive of our country, they have this football right they carry and they can launch nuclear, you know, they it has to be verified. So. Anyway, it, it really showed a lot of, of things that perhaps need to be addressed. But this article, which comes from The Verge on January 23rd, says Hawaii governor forgot Twitter password during false missile alert crisis. And so, you know, unable to log into Twitter, they couldn't alert people. Um, some some folks did uh, use Twitter and find out, you know, sooner than 43 minutes later that um you know, this was was not correct. It was it was a mistake, and there wasn't an incoming missile attack. So, uh, Jason, anything you've heard or seen or experienced similar to this in terms of a fake, you know, public disaster announcement? I I, I don't think I've 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 heard of something you know quite on this scale before. No, the only thing that I can think of that's that's even close is there's been some. They're not even false. They're just kind of jumping the gun. Amber alerts, and I did have a very surreal experience last year where I was sitting in the student union building in the University of Montana when an amber alert came over, and uh, basically it hit. There's, there's probably a thousand students, um, uh, members of the public, faculty, staff in in this large. Uh, area where people are eating lunch and the Amber Alert hit within the same 10 seconds. And it was this completely surreal moment where everyone grabs their phone, all the notifications are going off. And then it turns out it wasn't a false alarm. It just wasn't entirely accurate. And they had to to repeal and send a new one out moments later. That's the closest I've been to that. Um, I think what's really interesting about the story is, I mean, obviously scary implications and that's something that we need to be thinking about, but there's been a lot of interesting media after the fact about a couple of different pieces. First, there's a security angle. The, the, I was looking for this article and I couldn't find it. Apparently, the one of the pictures posted post um, a story was a picture of one of the systems that was uh, in play here that wasn't very well designed, and the password for one of those systems was posted on a sticky note on the monitor, which for those of you that are Silicon Valley show fans know that that's a kind of a funny gag from a couple seasons ago uh, uh, that someone had posted their their uh, password on a sticky note on their monitor. By the way, don't do that. That's terrible, terrible security. Um, the other piece that's also interesting was that they've posted a number of screenshots of the system at play, and apparently the all clear button and the unbelievable disaster button are like right next to each other. And there it was, it, it was easy basically to click on the you know, incoming ballistic missile button as opposed to the all is well in the world button. And so, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, time, a lot of media around design thinking. That's a topic that's starting to become kind of buzzwordy um, in, in K-12 education and maybe more specifically in ed tech, but design does matter. And I obsess about this a little bit because of my day job, but, you know, design systems that let you make the right decisions, design systems that let you learn in an easy pathway, uh, the systems that are not foolproof per se, but give you the power to do what you intend to do as the end user is incredibly important. So, so, so for the record, don't post your password on your monitor with a sticky note. And if you are a, uh, uh, if you've won a high office in your state, know your Twitter password. That's a, that's good advice, whether you are the Twitter in chief in the United States or you're just a lowly governor. So don't forget your Twitter password. And I think an educational lens on this is the whole idea of being connected. You know, yeah. I'm hearing a whole lot because I'm listening to Note to Self and some other podcasts about the negatives of being connected and people are talking about going off Facebook and, you know, just how, how how terribly addictive social media can be. And I think it is important to recognize that, but we need to be, you know, using these tools with intentionality, with, with balance and limits and, and for the good. And so wouldn't it have been nice if you were sitting in a Hawaii classroom to be able to be on Twitter and, you know, if you had crying students as, I mean, I heard news reports of kids who were, who were with their parents and that that's, they thought the, the, their lives were over. They were, they, I think they have like 15 minutes or something warning if it's a North Korean 
uh, ballistic missile attack. Um, you know, being able to have access to other uh, other kinds of information and also trusted sources, right? Because this is, you know, certainly a case where you're going to want to trust the authority. This is coming over official lines. But it, this is a teachable moment for, for everybody thinking about, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, hopefully, you know, people... I, I don't know of anybody who had a heart attack, hopefully, or, you know, somebody who really suffered uh, severely. But, you know, when when uh, I was just telling my daughter tonight, we were said, I'll, I'll preview my geek of the week, which has to do with this. <clears throat> the the stock crash in 29. Right. There were people who jumped out of buildings and and did really dramatic things. So anyway, we, we always need to be thinking about the validity of information and being able to check our sources and having other trusted sources. So, yay, there's another plug for being a connected educator, which I would say is a, a spin on the lessons learned here. There you go. Well, Wes, let's move to some Google news because we have about 95 different pieces of it today. So uh, I posted this last week, and I want to kind of follow up on it because I think it's actually has impacted me in the past. 9to5Google um, reported a couple of different articles about that Google is reporting that uh, Google devices on certain networks run by certain Wi-Fi routers are overwhelming the network and essentially causing the networks to go down. And so um, for those of you that are you know, week-to-week followers uh, may have noticed that about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I was complaining an awful lot about my, my terrible Wi-Fi situation. I replaced uh, a router and then I replaced it again with uh, Google uh, cloud routers, which has been actually a good plus for me. But as it turns out, people with Google Homes check and people with Google Chromecast check have overwhelmed some routers because the firmware on those devices was set to send a massive burst of information back to Mother Google as part of a startup routine when that device first um, uh, 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 gained a Wi-Fi connection. And so that, I think, explains my instances where there were times when it seemed like my internet connection didn't work at all and a reset of the Wi-Fi router seemed to make a difference. And apparently they're issuing firmware patches for that. So um, uh, interesting uh, piece. The part I keep thinking about regarding this, chances are you're not using enterprise, I'm sorry, uh, consumer level Wi-Fi technology at school, at least I hope you're not, uh, that you're using good, solid, enterprise level Wi-Fi hardware in your school, wherever you're at, but um, I do think a lot of strange things happen with home networking products, and I don't think a lot of people, and I would include me in this, because the extent of my troubleshooting was unplugging it and plugging it back in again. I have a little bit of, of, of network training. I was at one point a Cisco certified technician to teach a Cisco class, and I, I don't know much more than that, right? Like, And I think that's something that, that is kind of interesting, and in that as we start to get large numbers of devices, and in fact, tonight, I, I, I want to count so I report this. Um, I have 24 devices tonight on my Wi-Fi network that are live and working. Um, and the reason why um, I, that's the case is that we have a guest in our home tonight. Uh, we have our our uh, kiddo, the uh, exchange student that's living in our home who has a number of net-connected devices. My wife and I do as well. And we have a prolific number of Internet of Things devices that are starting to grow in our network. And imagine for a moment if even one of those with bad firmware did what these high-quality Google items did and just overwhelm a router so it shut down. So something to think about, um, you know, and, and, and definitely that wasn't what I thought the cause would be, but it turns out it was probably Google hardware. So, Wes, did you check how many devices do you have on your router tonight? Yeah, I'm looking right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it shows live. I mean, I don't know if this is probably not viewable, but, I mean, this is the, the scrolling screen of all the devices. Our Circle Go will record everything that, has uh, connected and actually when a new device, my wife is out of town. Uh, and so she, uh, she got the text alert saying that a new device had connected. And anyway, I was like, yeah, that's this laptop I, you know, I brought from, from school. So I, I don't know. Uh, it's going to be a crazy number. I'll have to, I'll have to get back with you. I think I can log into my airport router um, and it'll give me a live number, but I'm actually hoping to make a switch um, first off on a cable modem to, to go to the next level that will actually go up to 300 you know, megabits per, per second or whatever. Um, but then also look at, look at a switch on the, uh, the, the access point side. Um, shout outs to Peggy George and Jamie Camp who are here in our chat room. Yay. 
from Arizona and from Texas. And please uh, let us know if there are particular articles you all would like to, to see covered. One of the things I was trying to do this in OneNote, but um, I've done this a few times on the show where I'll take a screenshot on my iPad and then mark out articles just to, you know, kind of keep track of what we talk about and what we don't. There's there's so much. But let's let's keep the Google uh, discussion going. Um, I'll do I'll do a little speed round of a, of a couple. Uh, Fortune magazine, January 16th, Google launches new IT course, offers access to jobs and scholarships. Uh, this is a pretty rigorous program. They're, you know, th- they're saying this is an eight to 12 month program where you're doing about eight hours a week. So weeknights, you're about two hours a day. Uh, that's pretty intense, you know, even in a graduate program, you know, taking one or two classes, you know, eight hours, that's, is, is a lot. Uh, but what they're recognizing is that IT is going to continue to be a growth industry in Google's case and other companies. They're having trouble hiring folks. It's also an area that there are a lot of, uh, of dollars available. I think they quote 54,000 or something like that as a starting salary, which I would venture to say is probably not the case in Oklahoma, certainly not in education where we are. Um, but it, uh, you know, it is nationwide. And so exciting that if you've got the, the passion and the desire, they've also got scholarships available. And this is a opportunity for folks mainly about Windows and Linux systems, but there's also a cybersecurity portion to that. And so connected to that as well is an announcement from Google that they have uh, created a new company. Um, if you haven't seen a TED talk by Astro Teller. He is the leader of what used to be called Google X and is now I think just called X. It's a part of Alphabet, which is the Google, you know, mothership. And they do crazy things uh, that are moonshots. Like they're, you know, creating these balloons to try to provide, you know, wireless high speed internet connectivity all over the planet in rural areas and, uh, you know, contact lenses that are going to be able to measure your your blood sugar level, perhaps, and other kinds of things. Um, but this is cybersecurity. And so they have, they have spun off a new company and there's a, a blog post that, uh, that Astro Teller put out on Twitter and then the company did as well. And it is called, um, the Chronicle. Um, and so Chronicle, uh, SEC is to attack cybersecurity and they're going to be using artificial intelligence and machine learning. We hear those terms being kicked around a whole lot. But when it comes to Google, you can have confidence they're not kidding and they're really using it. And so they're saying that a lot of the, you know, challenges that we face as IT professionals when it comes to cybersecurity is there's just so much going on and you're, you know, potentially, you know, putting band-aids and trying to fix problems after they've happened. But there are telltale signs of intrusions and things like that happening on your network. So I'm really excited because I think much like Chrome and the Chrome OS has been a fresh look at operating systems and a design from scratch. We've talked on the show about, you know, how Leo Laporte and others on the Twit network say, hey, you may not want to run your old, you know, antivirus, anti-malware because these programs may, may cause more problems than they solve. And they actually might open you up to things. Um, we talked last week, I think, about Kaspersky, how it basically has an inventory of every single file on your computer. And so whether or not the Kaspersky company was in collusions with with the Russian government, uh, it appears clear from what the CIA has has uh, has let out that that program was used to lift secret documents and and uh, classified material from the laptops of different you know U.S. employees and and in other places as well. So I think both of those are are pretty exciting. And uh, Jason, I guess I'd segue to your day job. Are you guys doing things as far as IT professional, you know, preparation or, or is that not on the elective uh, palette of the Montana Digital Academy right now? It, it, it's not there yet. It's a conversation we have quite a lot in context of other state virtual schools that we work with. Montana is a member of the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, which is a group of state virtual schools that 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 talk about these kinds of topics. and. We, we want to go in this direction. Part of the problem, though, is that cybersecurity as a technology course is a relatively advanced technology course, so you can't really jump into cybersecurity and the kind of things that you could teach that would be on more of the technical end of that until you have some precursors. And so we're kind of working on building those pieces, but it's, it's a big, it's, it's an important piece. And, you know, I think, uh, I'm, I'm, 
glad to hear that Google's going in this direction. In fact, um, we keep a close eye on this because if they start doing things like they're known to do, like release curriculum objects, that might be an opportunity for us to take some of those and use that to help create a sustainable course that's updated related to cybersecurity. But I think, yeah, it's definitely a direction we'd like to go into. And, you know, I do think there's a lot of room for it. And it's, it's always really interesting to me. Google has shifted so dramatically in the last 20 years. It used to be they were hiring, um, you know, Ivy League uh, four-pointers, right? That was what, what a lot of the early days at Google, they were focusing on on, on kids that have successful track records at uh, uh, companies, uh, I'm sorry, track records in education and then bringing them in to, to be part of the company. And now they've evolved just a little bit, um, and are trying to kind of prime the pump for people to take, you know, uh, something outside of the traditional mainstream of education and get them certifications for the purpose of kind of growing that, 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 that cognizance and that workforce. And, you know, it, like, like a lot of technical and scientific jobs, you know, we're just not keeping up at this point in the pipeline. And so I think, you know, whatever we can do to, you know, get that, you know, to be part of the conversation, right, to get people in that direction, I think it's an important piece for us. Let's talk a little laptop stuff, uh, which I guess might be Chrome as well as Microsoft. But under the Microsoft heading today uh, on our links, Verge from January 22nd, Microsoft challenges Chromebooks with $189 Windows 10 laptops for schools. And then over on the Chromebook world, um, we've got the Chrome Unbox January 22nd. Lenovo expands educational Chromebook lineup and Acer announced a new Chromebox and two new Chromebooks. Anything exciting here, Jason? And do you think uh, Microsoft has a chance of, of edging into the Chrome uh, market share of education? Well, there's, there's two things I, I pulled from these articles. The first one is on the Chromebook side. It was very interesting to me that there are companies that are starting to release new Chromebooks this year, happens every year, but the one statistic, excuse me, there that I thought was so interesting was that many of the educational Chromebooks are going to be available with eight gigabyte RAM options. And that's something that was unheard of in the education Chromebooks. Now I'm using a Chromebook Pixel that has eight gigabytes of RAM. That's a, a, a relatively high end Chromebook. Um, I do have a couple of, of, of old laptops that have 8 gigabytes of RAM that I'm using uh, Cloud Ready by Neverware that creates a Chromium OS experience. But I found that 8 gigabytes of RAM is a is actually a, 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 a really important piece to being a power user on a Chromebook. So I was very excited to hear that those Chromebooks are starting to kind of edge into, you know, more higher end specs. A lot of them still have relatively low resolution screens. They're using relatively medium or uh, low end Intel or ARM chips, mostly for battery life reasons, I'm assuming, and also expense. But it's really great to see that they're going in the direction of, of offering some higher end specs. Um, that said, the Microsoft article is interesting for a different reason because I'm not surprised that Microsoft is attempting to go after Chromebooks with uh, you know, sub $200 uh, uh, offerings. The, the question I always have, however, is, is Windows 10 a usable experience with a $189 laptop? And the part that I thought was so interesting about the Microsoft announcement is that they never mentioned Windows 10 S even once in that article, which is Microsoft's supposed Chrome OS killer, where they're creating both a great experience for IT professionals to set up Windows 10 devi S devices and also creating secure and scaled back solutions that work well on lower end hardware. And the fact that that wasn't mentioned at all in the article, I think, is an interesting sign. So I still, you know, I... I can be okay on a cheap device. I think I generally prefer older devices that maybe at one point were super premium that are cheaper now because they're dated over a newer device that, that has a, a slow chip uh, that's cheap. It's intended to be mass market, but um, yeah, there seems to be a race to the bottom, and I don't think that, that has led Microsoft in the right direction in the past. So it'll be interesting to see um, where schools go with this. So, Wes, are you in the market for any $189 laptops as an IT director? <laughs> you know, the dream of a 
one-to-one -one device that is very affordable and very powerful has been, I think, on the minds of lots of us in education for a long time. I don't remember what year at, at ISTE it was where Nicholas Negroponte was there with the OLPC. I think it was maybe even back in 2009 when I first laid hands on uh, one of those at a COSIN conference in DC. And actually shout out to Mark Allness uh, up, in, up in Seattle, who uh, was one of the first people to buy the, one of those and play with them. And you know, it's, it was very logo-like in, in its capabilities. Certainly nothing that we're going to be, you know, getting kids excited about today who want to watch YouTube videos and, and be on Instagram. Um, but I think we are continuing to, to, you know, just see the effect of Moore's law on computing and the yes. idea that, you know, vast, we're already, our minds are, should be, especially if we remember the sound of a dial-up modem, you know, really blown by the capabilities. And, you know, watch a watch a Ray Kurzweil, you know, TED talk or, or video on YouTube talking about singularity because we are in the elbow of the exponential growth when it comes to this stuff. And so what it means practically, you know, for schools is that we don't need to buy a very expensive, you know, top of the line laptop to do some really compelling things, not some just basic things, but some really compelling things. And I won't go so far as, you know perhaps Gary Steger or others might do as we keep on telegraphing, we'll do a Chromebook show later, you know, to say, Hey, everybody needs to just have a raspberry Pi, and then you can, you know, write your own code, do all of your own stuff. I mean, you can do that, but yes, for a couple hundred bucks, it's pretty incredible what you can do, especially when you look at the cost of curriculum. And this is a conversation that, that I'm continuing to try and catalyze at our school where it's not just about a device, but it's also about, well, number one, what do you want to do instructionally? Where are your materials? I mean, I, I need to get a backpack, you know, backpacking, um, you know, backpack wear, or that's not the word for it, but scale, where you can, you know, put your backpack on the on the hook like you, like you do at, at Philmont and other places when you're hitting the trail. To, and, and you know, my daughter in eighth grade, her, her backpack, I'm sure, was over 50 pounds yesterday coming home. And so... Anyway, there's different sides of this, but I think it's hugely relevant. And it's also tied to this idea of will we reinvent the operating system and create, you know, solutions that are very readily um, manageable and we can just blow them away with a, with a power wash. And so I think, Jason, you might have put this one in. Maybe I did, but the Google Fuchsia, did you do that one, the 9 to 5? I did. Yeah, yeah I did. So, so 9 to 5 Google, January 23rd. What is what is Google's Fuchsia OS anyway, and and why does it matter for schools, Jason? Well, um, so there is a – I think we mentioned this maybe when this was first released, but Google has been working on it, – it's not even in secret. They You can go download the operating system on a an open source uh, – I think a GitHub open source page, but – Google's been working on an operating system called Fuchsia OS, which is not Chrome OS and it's not Android, but in fact, the operating system seems to be built to be used on both. And the reason why I wanted to, to mention this is because Fuchsia now works on the Chromebook, or I'm sorry, the Chrome Pixel Book, which is the Google current generation of the high-end Chromebooks that they sell. And it also apparently works on at least one or two phones. And people are downloading the software and installing it, and it crashes all the time. It's not very functional. But there is a couple things that are really interesting about it. One of them is that it seems to put the Google Assistant interface, and for those of you unaware of the Android universe, Google Assistant is essentially the Google voice control that has kind of a lot of things built into it. It's what also runs the Google Home as well. But the Google Assistant um, seems to be front and center in the operating system. Now, that's very interesting to me as an education researcher because I am studying uh, uh, intelligent personal assistance as part of my graduate research at the University of Montana. But it's also interesting that Google seems to be interested in something that may be either an alternative or a successor to their split OSs, right? There's Android on mobile, there's Chrome OS on laptop and and uh, two-in-one experiences, and they seem to maybe wanting to hedge their bets somewhere in the middle. And since, you know, Android has never really been a an accepted ta uh, uh, tablet experience, even though I, I have owned an Android tablet that was just fine, I felt like it was a usable uh, item, it appears that Google is attempting to create something um, there. So does that have any interest to you as an end user, Wes? 
Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, it, but probably in, in a future iteration, right? I'm not going to – I have played, and I think this is a, this is a good thing because we learn as we play, you know, with different distributions of Linux and seeing, you know, what Ubuntu can do. Shout out to Miguel Gulen, who was one of the people that kind of got me into that. And, you know, it, it's powerful and impressive, and there's a lot – a lot of important things that we need to know as as IT professionals, and especially if you're going to work in the realm of cybersecurity about Linux. Linux is such an important part of the landscape. But, you know, I don't know that we're going to be running Linux in 100 years. And so folks who are reinventing and looking at how, you know, operating system kernels can be recreated, um, th- those are seismic changes when, when Mac – uh, or Apple moved from from OS nine to the Linux kernel with OS ten. I mean that was huge, and it meant changes for all the software and everything that runs on it. But um, it's it's great to see multiple companies taking a stab at this, and so this isn't something that I'm going to rush out to join. And in the chat room, you know, um, I commented to Jamie that you know it's it's about cloud management as well as the prices, right? So. It's it's good to see, I think, Windows and, and Microsoft moving into that. But, you know, they've got a lot to prove as far as Microsoft and, and Apple does as well. I think in terms of can you offer not only products but management tools that really facilitate, in some cases, basic things like I want to share a printer or I want to give, <clears throat> you know, students access to certain tools and certain capabilities and, you know, limit limit others. Um, you know, the mobile device management is something that Apple has continued to uh, push off to other companies. I don't see that changing. And so I'm not aware of what Microsoft is doing on that front. I'm sure we could check in with Miguel and others. Um, but anyway, it's, it's of interest, but not something that I think is going to affect our IT budget, you know, this year uh, for sure. And, and we'll just have to see kind of what happens. Sure. Absolutely. So um, a couple other headlines, and I'd like to to maybe talk some Apple stuff, and then also and we'll go back to this YouTube stuff because at the top of our show notes we yeah. got quite a bit of stuff on YouTube changes that we'd like to to touch on. So uh, Google teased their I/O event with pictures of a pineapple cake and a series of riddles that was in The Verge on January 24th, and the article says, I guess if you if you uh, will go through the riddles, uh, May 8th to the 10th in Mountain View. And uh, Jason, it's not going to work, I'm sure, this year, but let's put that on our bucket list. Wouldn't it be fun, seriously, for you and I to it would meet be. at Google I.O. And, you know, we could uh, we could go to an Apple event, we could go to a Microsoft or, or Amazon event, but I think we have a lot of shared affinity for Google, and it would be quite quite fun to have a live EdTech SR from the, the Google I.O. Ground Zero. Um, and the other thing I want to mention, Google is uh, also under the security headline. This is The Verge on January 23rd. Over 90% of Gmail users still don't use two-factor authentication. So I shared a presentation with our faculty um, at, a, at a meeting. I only had, a, I had you know, five or ten minutes. But it was really thanking everybody for the transition to two-factor because as of Christmas, 100% of our faculty staff on our Google domain are using two-step and, you know, normally when you hear something like this, you know, you're different than 90% of the people out there. It, you might wonder, am I doing the wrong thing? But I truly believe that proactive organizations as well as individuals are going to continue to utilize two-factor authentication, unique and complex passwords, password managers. You know, that's that's a really important part of being safe. So those were a couple couple other headlines. Would you like to take us into some Apple articles? We got uh, a few different things under that headline tonight. Sure. Um, so to repeat, uh, I'm sorry, to go back to a story reported on a couple of weeks ago, The Verge is reporting that Apple is saying that they will be allowing users to toggle uh, the battery saving feature that was of all the controversy a few weeks ago when it was discovered that Apple was using recent versions of the iOS software on its iPhones to scale back the speed of those phones in order to conserve battery life. And I believe that I said that night when we announced this, that if Apple had just put a toggle switch in the settings, this would have not been a big deal. As it turns out, that's exactly what Apple is doing. They're allowing this to be a setting where you can choose to prefer battery life or you can prefer speed of the phone. And so I think this is the smart move on Apple. They will continue to face large lawsuits. In fact, um, I think I've seen a couple of emails, uh, not emails, excuse me, articles suggesting that there are um, 
a number of class action lawsuits by Apple users uh, to to sue Apple over this. I don't personally see the need for that uh, because I feel like that they're making good on it by offering battery replacements and now uh, fixing the software to give you a choice. But that is something that we reported on earlier that there is a follow-up. There's also some uh, news out of Apple with regard to uh, HomePod. And this this relates to home assistance, and it might be um, interesting for us to tell tell about our latest adventures. Jason, as you, the listeners of the show know, is one of those folks that has the Amazon Miss A uh, and also our uh, lovely Mrs. G. Or as of this last week, you can change the voice of your Google Assistant now. Uh, they don't say it's male. It's an androgynous name. It, or voice, it, it, it sounds pretty male to me, but anyway, you can change that. I was able to change it verbally, and but I can't verbally change it back to the female, and then I couldn't find the setting in home where you can set that. I just need to spend a little bit more time. But on the Apple front, Apple has announced that you can order your HomePod, which is their premium level uh, speaker that's going to have Siri built in, um, and that can be at your house, I guess, as of February 9th. So the orders are going to start. And uh, Tim Cook, according to Fortune, on January 24th, explains why you'll want the HomePod. And the main reason is audio fidelity. You're going to love the quality that you're going to get for $350. So, Jason, the big question for you is, you already have Miss A. You've already got the Google Assistant. Will the HomePod be making a visit so that you can truly, you know, give us the lowdown on comparing these three uh, digital systems? Well, I mean, it may make me the most ridiculous person on earth. Um, I'm already a candidate for that, to be honest, with the sheer number of, of laptops I go through. But um, the uh, I, I am only interested from the standpoint that, generally speaking, when Apple promises a good audio experience, they're not joking. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I was so excited when they purchased Beats is because Beats were a disappointing audio quality purchase for me. In fact, at one point I bought a pair of Beats and returned them because I just didn't understand the um, the the desire to own them because I didn't really hear much different. But my understanding is since Apple's acquired that company, that the audio files have taken back to Beats as being a better quality than they have been in the past. So only from that standpoint, and again, I'm not really an audiophile, um, uh, am I potentially interested in that particular item? So I know, Wes, you at home have gone in with the, the Google Home Minis. Um, will um, a HomePod be part of your future purchases? I don't think so. And I really think that, I mentioned this before, Apple is losing the race with AI. Um, yes. I, I tweeted an article, which I didn't put in the show notes, about the iPhone is dead. And, of course, you hear these things that you know people want to have everyone read that. But this person um, has switched you know, back and forth between iPhone and Android several times. And, you know, they've had bad experiences with Apple Care and other things. But the smart assistant, right? If we're living, as Sundar Pichai says, in the, the, the age of AI, we've left the mobile, the, you know, what is, it, what is it called? Mobile first world behind, and now it's the yeah. AI first world. You know, what you buy and the ecosystem you invest in, you know, could have some ripple effects. And, and there are going to be outliers, you know, as, as I will say, Jason, I think you are, who are going to invest in more than one, but probably yeah. most fam families are just going to invest in, t in a, a single one, you know, not, not multiple. So I don't think so. I mean, one of the main things that had the appeal, uh, I, I mentioned this before, the broadcast feature and then the simultaneous streaming. Interestingly, you can't stream podcasts yet with Google Assistant in multiple rooms. You can you stream Pandora or your Google Play Music, but you can't stream your briefing or, or, or these podcasts. Um, but the fact that it was $30 a piece and we can have them in multiple rooms, that's a huge deal. And so would I love to have an incredible audio experience? Yeah, I guess. But it's a bigger deal for me to be able to have it in four different places in the in the house. And then, you know, as we're liking it, thinking, hmm, I think I might like one of those in, in this bedroom or, you know, somewhere else. So don't think I'm going to be doing that. I do want to say, though, uh, Verge had an article on January the 23rd. iPhone users can now ask Siri to read daily news podcasts. And that's something that Google Assistant folks and I, I think probably Miss um, A can do that too as far as news briefs. I've enjoyed going into my home app which you can actually do on iOS or on Android and then you can reorder the news that feeds that you're getting so you know like NPR news is, is by default but there's different tech news sources and I've you know kind of played around with that 
And just as you, you can have a, a wonderful serendipitous go down the rabbit hole moment where you hear something or read something and then you get a little bit more information. You know, I have uh, had my own learning landscape enhanced positively by the fact that I'm hearing this different show, a, a BBC, you know, Tech News Minute, uh, some, a different uh, twit um, tech news uh, shorter show than than the regular twit, and so it's it's been good. So what's what's the update on the Knifer Home digital assistant world, Jason? Anything new that you all are asking your devices, and and any uh, new differentiators that you have? Because I'm sure we have thousands with bated breath, you know, just on the edge of buying, and they might, as I did, just go with your advice and and have have something you know push them over the edge one way or the other. Um, I did try something with the Internet of Things world that, honestly, I don't understand. And so I did buy a smart light bulb. It was on sale a couple of weeks ago. I, I will say it's not one of the super multicolored ones. It's just a white uh, light bulb that uh, you, you, know, you screw in, you hook it up to your Wi-Fi network, and then you can turn it on and off and then do different uh, brightness with it. Um, but this, this bulb had amazing reviews on Amazon. And I just don't understand the point. Like, I just don't get why, you know, like, I, it is kind of nice to have the ability to dim that light, right? And you could buy multiple light bulbs and then, you know, set up different scripts and stuff that make some light and some dark or make them all dim or, you know, hook that to other things. Like, you could turn them on, a, like, in a vacation mode, for example. And those are all kind of interesting, but... I just, like, it hooked up to both uh, the Divine Miss A and the Google Home, and I just don't understand the lure. Um, so I, you know, it's a maybe a nerd too far for me, but um, it's, yeah, I don't get it. Okay. Well, a uh, couple other things, and then let's jump into these YouTube articles. Um, Apple is adding a new privacy icon to iOS and macOS to prevent iCloud password phishing. This was The Verge today on January 24th. Uh, I think that's a good thing. You know, we can have, you know, two-step verification and complex passwords, but if we're clicking things that we shouldn't click, if we're being tricked, these kinds of pop-up messages have been happening in browsers for a while. And some of them, you know, you've been hacked, click here to get help. And then, you know, it delivers the malware package when you click on what you, you know, are guessing is actually an assistance link to, to, to software. So, there was a software engineer, I think, that recently demonstrated, according to the article, how easy it is for an app developer to do this, to have a pop-up that looks like iCloud. <clears throat> Apple tends to police its app store, you know, better than than uh, Google does with the Play Store. We've had several different security articles in the, the last few weeks about, you know, in some cases, I think this was last week, right, hundreds of thousands of downloads of some malicious uh, software and, and Chrome extensions that, you know, we're actually doing bad things. So glad to see Apple doing that. Again, Apple is really planting its flag in privacy. And <clears throat> when we see the next Apple event, I would, I would, I would bet they're going to continue that because, you know, that is a way they differentiate themselves in the marketplace from, from Google and from Amazon. But the race to AI and with machine, machine learning powering the, you know, stuff, it's, it, it's data. And, and so if you're letting everyone just be siloed and you're not, gathering their information and their data and, and then hopefully using it for good to make your products better and to improve <clears throat> your AI and your machine learning developed services, I think you're going to, in the big scheme of things, uh, lose the race. But yep. I've been wrong before and I, I could be wrong here. So you want to jump us into some of these YouTube articles, Jason, because there's several several different things here. And Ben Wilkoff had reached out to us uh, last week or the week before uh, talking a little bit about the educational implications of this. Yeah, so the the one that I think has gotten the most attention, and you know, one thing that, that seems to be true right now is that YouTube seems to be kind of at war with its content creators. And I don't think it's all content creators, and I don't think it's all categories of content creators, but YouTube seems to, to be, have relationship problems with folks that are the ones that are feeding that. And, and don't, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that a lot of YouTube's bread and butter is big mega corporations that utilize the YouTube platform 
to serve up, you know, music videos that, that have three million hits and, and uh, uh, entertainment that, uh, or entertainment properties that are, are releasing pieces that get hundreds of thousands of hits in, in 24 hours. But YouTube has announced that they're going to be tightening rules about which channels they're going to be able to monetize. And if my memory serves me correctly, that you need to essentially um, have at least a thousand subscribers, and I believe the number was 4,000 hours of, of watching annually. So in other words, you need to have subscribers and traffic to be able to monetize your channel. And that's it's interesting to me for, for, for a number of reasons, but it seems like that small operators with maybe niche channels are going to get squeezed out of the monetizing, even though, let's be honest, if, if you have less than 4,000 hours of views a year and less than 1,000 subscribers, there's a pretty good chance you're not making megabucks um, on the monetization of that video. But still, the fact that they seem to be setting this bar so that they can, I, I think, aim at, you know, uh, bad actors in this space, um, you know, they seem to be wanting to do that. So first, let's let's be clear. This also counts out the EdTech Situation Room YouTube channel, a popular destination for all teachers everywhere from going to monetizing. And, like, while it's not a big deal, right, Wes and I are clearly not doing this for the money, um, at the same time, like, that... You know, if, if for some reason episodes or perhaps the channel caught fire a little bit, for us to have to get to a point where we have a thousand subscribers to monetize seems a little punishing for me for being a small content creator. It does. And I think um, we ought to talk some more offline, Jason, about advertising because maybe this year it might be it might be fun for us to dabble with either a company, you know, that we can that will find ads that we read on the show or, you know, think about joining the Twit Network or joining somewhere. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of possibilities here around the ways in which things get amplified. <clears throat> what I'd like to comment on and then I want to talk specifically about this Logan Paul article and pranking culture and, and this stuff um, this ties to what we discussed last week uh, with Facebook making changes to their news feed and addressing issues that were tied to the election, right? Before Christmas, we had Silicon Valley representatives, not CEOs, but basically the lawyers, and I think PR communications people appearing before, I think, both Senate and House. I know there were Senate committees uh, testifying about what happened, what went wrong, what they're doing. And so Silicon Valley wants to avoid government regulation, which is going to you know, at worst, you know, really hamstring and harm, you know, innovation and also profits, of course, of, of what they're trying to do with different kinds of digital platforms. Um, but also, I think there's a genuine sense that we want these tools to improve our lives and not make them worse. We don't want our democracy subverted. We also don't want, you know, um, stories like what happened with Logan Paul. So uh, this is from the Vox on January the 3rd. The article is titled Logan Paul and the Toxic YouTube Prank Culture that Created Him Explained. And I would wager, and I'm not a betting guy, so I'm not going to do this for real, but if I was to bet, you know, if you're to walk into any high school classroom today and you're to say, hey, do you guys know who Logan Paul is and about, you know, the suicide video in Japan, I am almost 100% sure that you're going to have a, over 50% of the kids raising their hands. Yeah, I know about that. And similarly, if you were to, to walk into a faculty meeting of, of teachers today and say, hey, how many of you know about Logan Paul? I bet there's this is a, a situation where there's a big disconnect between younger generation and older generation. And so um, pranking culture on YouTube is, is actually, I think, a topic ripe for, for digital citizenship discussion because – you know, probably similar to pornography. If we're, if you're watching it and if you're liking it and you're sharing it, you're contributing to it. And, you know, there, there are, you know, I think adults who've been now charged, thankfully, with crimes on things that they've done to their children. And, you know, when you're, when you're pranking someone, you know, there's, there's a line somewhere where, where it goes too far. And so Logan Paul is a very popular YouTuber who was in, J in Japan was in this forest and saw uh, a person's dead body hanging who had committed suicide, shot video of that, was laughing and, you know, said later, I was just trying to deal with the shock. Uh, but basically this violates all of YouTube's terms of service. And he's a very popular YouTuber and YouTube never took it down. It was actually taken down by him and it was up almost 24 hours and became one of the top trending videos on YouTube. So this is a very big issue. 
And so certainly YouTube doesn't want to see this kind of thing making headlines, but they also want to curb fake news and, you know, this idea of people being able to monetize fake news. And so I think that the monetization thing has a lot to do with election and the ways in which things go viral, but it also crosses over into just, you know, YouTube culture, popular culture. So I will admit that I did not know Logan Paul. He has a younger brother who's a real popular YouTuber. My eighth grade daughters, she's all over this. You know, she knows about this. She's talked about it with her, with her, uh, her friends. Um, you know, any of this news to you, Jason, or were you, have you been tracking on, on all this stuff uh, yourself? I've seen headlines, but I have no idea who Logan Paul is. I mean, I, I know from, from the stories, but I mean, I think that's, I mean, that, that's, that's the power and promise and the, the warning of these platforms, right? Like first, you know, let, let's be honest, the YouTube celebrities do make some coin, um, on, uh, with the YouTube platform. And it's not just the, the monetization of the channel, it's sponsorships, it's, the, my understanding is if you become one of the super YouTube folks, you, a shocking amount of free swag shows up at your home on the odd chance that one of those things might be worn or utilized during a video. I mean, there's a really big monetary incentive for people to do, let's be honest, dumb stuff that goes viral, right? Yeah. And and I think that's, you know, like I, in the same way that Wes and I thinks that that's empowering, right? Like you, you can, you can publish to a world audience, right? Like you can share your views on things to the entire world via YouTube. It also has the, the ability to, to be abused. And so that goes back to a common theme here, digital citizenship, digital citizenship, digital citizenship, and needing to be aware of, um, you know, that, not all freedom is used in, in positive and in, in constructive ways. And just as we have students today who want to be, you know, NBA stars or be an NFL, you know, uh, you know superstar, um, we've got folks that want to be YouTube stars. And that can be a very positive and constructive thing, but it can also lead to some really stupid uh, decisions. And so in that Vox article, which is the number one, article I'd recommend that I've kind of read on this. Here's a, a quick paragraph. Searching YouTube for prank yields today 33,300,000 results, the most popular of which has over 110 million views. Despite being only the 51st most popular creator on YouTube, according to Social Blade, Logan Paul's monetization of his videos bring him anywhere from 3000 to a staggering $50,000 per clip. Yeah. So that is just like, wow. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a good conversation to have with, you know, what are kids watching? Um, who, who are their influencers? And, you know, as students use the platform, it's an opportunity to talk about a lot of different things, not only, you know, what's appropriate and not appropriate and what kinds of things are we, are we, um, you know, filling, filling our, our minds and, and uh, our eyes with, but also, you know, to what degree are we, uh, how are we using those tools ourselves? You know, if, if we're publishing, if we're using our voice and what are the, what are the borders, right? What are the boundaries? Humor is a challenging thing. Cause it's, it's different, but, uh, I, I hope that I mentioned this last week or the week before this digital citizenship site, digsit.us. <clears throat> we're going to end up uh, having some, some different narrated slideshows that will talk about some of these kinds of timely issues. Cause we need to have, you know, internet safety, traditional sorts of conversations with students at different levels. But, you know, these are things we need to talk about as well. And uh, especially I think the chance to, to talk with parents and, and uh, adults. So, because of um, uh, a death in our family and a memorial service that will happen this next uh, weekend, my father-in-law passed away, um, I've actually changed and moved back a series of presentations that I'll share at our church for parents and grandparents as well as uh, adults and kids. And so those are, it's just going to be moved back a week. But I'm really looking forward to that, looking forward to some conversations similar that we're going to be having at our school and all of this uh you know, stuff is, is, uh, educating me and kind of opening my eyes to some stuff that our kids know about, right. And we need to, to talk with them about. Absolutely. So anything else on the YouTube front, sir? Let's just do a quick shout out for Ben Wilkoff. Ben uh, has started a Google doc called the educator and student YouTube 1000 list. And part of the goal there, I think is, 
basically amplifying educators who are publishing on YouTube and getting the word out about their channels. So you can check that out and see uh, who has been added to the list. Add yourself to the list if you've got a YouTube channel. Uh, let's see, I'll scroll down and he's got, I guess, 20, 22 folks that are on there. So those are really good YouTube channels to add. And I um, will do a shout out again to, to uh, really Apple TV as well as YouTube. One of my favorite things is, is now looking at my recommended YouTube videos, uh, sometimes on my laptop, but a lot of times at home, I want that bigger screen. And so it's a, uh, it's a good thing as you like videos, as you watch them, YouTube is watching you. But in this case, it's a very positive thing because, you know, if you're enjoying videos about AI or about Google or, ed, you know, education or whatever your topic, or maybe it's a nice fireplace. We watched some fireplace videos over the holidays. And so it'll, it'll, it'll make those kinds of suggestions and that can be really positive. All right. Well. Would you like to, to geek of the week it? I think it's about that time. I, I'll say that I took your challenge and used the app, the uh, arts and culture app, mm -hmm. but I was in Allen, Texas, and, and Texas and Illinois have different biometric laws, and it yep. was very frustrating because I was like, where is this freaking thing? You know, and it wouldn't pop up to let me take my picture and see what I'm supposed to look like if, uh, you know, my my visage is compared to, you know, uh, there you go. There's there's one of the, the results. And so I had, after Googling it, I had to download a VPN, um, activate a free trial, select the VPN in New York. And then my iPad popped up and said, hey, would you like to find out what art matches you? So now that I'm back in Oklahoma and my IP address matches, I haven't even opened it since I got back. I will open it and it pops up. So that is a is an interesting thing. Yeah, look at that. Search with your selfie pops right up because the, the Oklahoma IP address is fine for biometrics. Yes. Anyway, interesting stuff. What do you got for us this week? Well, um, I would like to point out a, an interesting thing that I've stumbled upon, too. Actually, I saw this after the first of the year. There were some references to it. But the New York Times or a couple of, of staffers at the New York Times have started the New York Times Podcast Club. It's a Facebook group. And the reason why it's interesting to me is that not only has it been very useful to me, I've discovered a number of podcasts that I otherwise would not have discovered, but uh, you, you have to apply to get in. Um, you don't just sign up for it. And the application's simple. You have to name three podcasts you listen to. And I think the idea is they want to kind of fish out people that are interesting kind of broadly in the podcast culture. But both staffers and members of the group, and there are thousands of people in this group. And I know uh, a friend of mine uh, here in Montana, she's a very, 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 very big podcast listener. And I, I sent it to her. And she's already been engaged in commenting up and down uh, the, the Facebook group. But the P New York Times Podcast Club is a place where podcast aficionados go to, you know, find new podcasts. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of one that I was able to, to, to listen to. There's a really great podcast called Nocturnal that's kind of broadly about the night. And I will say the first three episodes I listened to were fascinating, including one uh, uh, that, uh, in fact, I, I used to kind of do this when I was a... So, uh, person that had summers off have kind of switched her days and nights around. She preferred to be awake at night. She's more productive at night. And I found that to be familiar to, to uh, a time earlier in time in my life. And it, she was talking about her transition to become, um, you know, a more daytime person um, through melatonin and uh, that transition. It was a fascinating story, 45 minute podcast. So the New York Times podcast club, I'm linking to the New York Times website um, on our show notes, but that just takes you to a Facebook group just type in New York Times Podcast Club into the Facebook search. I'm fairly certain you'll be able to find it. But again, it's 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 by uh, you know uh, acceptance only. You have to apply to get in. Although I have to say, they let me in, so the bar must be fairly low. <laughs> no, they they googled you intently and said this guy's definitely a geek. So they use their AI technology, which <laughs> transcribing all our shows, and said, "Yikes, we got to get him in." Uh, so two quick geeks of the week for me. Um, actually, watched the first one uh, tonight. It's a new PBS American Experience documentary, "The Secret of Tuxedo Park." Wow, never knew this. It's basically the story of Radar and how that came to be created. Um, I didn't know this, but before the United States had entered the war, Churchill, in kind of a, of a desperate attempt, just they, their scientists said, let's give the Americans all the stuff that we have. And we were not yet able to do microwave 
um, transmission and it was a missing piece as far as radar. And so there's a quote from this documentary that, you know, nuclear weapons ended the war, but radar is the technology that really won the war. And this is really the initiation of big science. And this, for, you know, foreshadows for DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which was created so that the U.S. government wouldn't be surprised by another Pearl Harbor. But man, absolutely fascinating. And it's the story of a guy who reminds me of Bruce Wayne, uh, you know, Batman, but, but for real, because Alfred Lee Loomis is this guy who uses his fortune that he acquires on the stock market to create his own laboratory and, you know, does some very progressive stuff. He basically in, uh, discovers slash invents the, the sonogram and that kind of technology and then has a lead with the Roosevelt's uh, science board and then all this at MIT that's called the Rad Lab and it's the radiation lab. But just absolutely riveting stuff and a great new documentary. And then the next one real quickly is a website, which Jason, I think if you're not already using it, you'll enjoy. It's called Flexible. And Lifehacker had an article on January 23rd. Flexible helps you find the perfect thing to watch on Netflix. And while it can be great to just see what Netflix suggests, you can do different kinds of filtering by genre, IMDb rating and other things, dates and be able to find your new shows. So if anybody listening ends up using that, let us know. Well, Wes, uh, where can we find you on the internet? I am on Twitter at W Fryer. My blog, Speed of Creativity, has been uh, a bit dormant, but I, I find myself actually now tweeting more, you know, links to Google Docs and some things like that than composing full-blown blog, blog posts. But I'm also creating on that digital citizenship website I mentioned for our school, uh, which is digsit.us. Excellent. And I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. I blog at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. And as a reminder, the NCC Spring Conference in Fabulous Seattle, Washington, uh, registration still open the 14th to the 16th of February 2018, where you can come see me talk about tech stuff. Uh, I know you can do that once a week here on the Tech Situation Room, but uh, if you want to hear about some of the things I'm working on broadly, that's a good place to do that. So uh, this action here is the Tech Situation Room, where once a week podcast, we broadcast live at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, and 3 a.m. UTC for those of you that are on the international, or I'm sorry, the Greenwich uh, Mean Time uh, folks. Uh, we uh, do broadcast live via YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, just type at EdTechSR, go to our website, EdTechSR.com, or you can download this as a podcast, both at our website, where we have little tiny files available, if that's your preference, or you can go to wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which includes the iTunes Store, Stitcher Radio, um, uh, Podcast Addict, I found out tonight, has uh, us uh, on their list, and I think they pull from the iTunes list, and of course, uh, your podcast probably has it, and so search for us to find that as soon as those episodes are released. So uh, thank you for tuning in. We hope to see you next week on the Antic Situation Room, and we hope you have a great week. Good night, everybody.